Good morning once again. It's good to see y'all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 6. If you're new with us, we welcome you. And just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, we entered into John 6 a couple weeks ago. And uh, as we have entered into John chapter 6, we have entered into one of the greatest chapters in the Bible containing one of the greatest teachings in the Bible, the Bread of Life Discourse. Now I say that uh, because as you study this chapter, um, you see the Lord himself draw attention to it. What do you mean? Well, as we have said in our previous studies, whenever you come, and I'm reading the New King James, but in the New King James, uh, whenever you read in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, that's his way of saying what I'm about to say is extremely important. Don't miss this. Get really tuned in because what I'm about to say, you don't want to miss this, okay? Now, four times in this discourse, the Lord uses those words. Most assuredly I say to you. I don't know personally, there might be, but I don't know personally of another discourse where four times the Lord stops his teaching to tell his listeners, look, what I'm saying is very important. Please don't miss this. Most assuredly, I say to you. And you say, well, what was so important? What topic of his teaching was so important that four times the Lord had to stop and tell them to make sure they were listening carefully? The topic is eternal life eternal life. In fact, the subject of eternal life is the main topic in John's entire gospel. He tells us that at the end of his gospel, and um, it appears the words uh, eternal life or everlasting life appear more than 50 times in John's gospel. His whole gospel is about eternal life and people receiving it. What makes the bread of life discourse one of the greatest in the Bible is found and in its core uh, message, which is eternal life. In fact, eight times in this discourse, Jesus mentions eternal life in verses 40, 47, 50, 51, 54, 57, 58, and verse 68. As we said last time, eight in the Bible is the number of new beginnings. And receiving eternal life and becoming a new creation in Christ is the ultimate new beginning, isn't it? Now, I've divided verses 22 through 71 of John 6 this way. The physical preoccupation of the multitudes, the divine declaration of the Savior, the carnal condemnation of the Jewish leaders, and the strategic separation of the true disciples from the false. And you'll understand what we mean by that when we get there. So uh, let's just review quickly the first main point, the physical preoccupation of the multitudes, starting in verse 22. Uh, and by this I say, before we go any further, this great multitude of people, uh, upwards of 20,000, uh, were more interested in their physical stomachs than they were in their eternal souls. Now we know that because of how the Lord Jesus addresses their desire to be near him in verse 26. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs and were, uh, it's not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were 
filled. The whole issue that Jesus is going to be addressing in this chapter is those who seek him and even follow him for the wrong reasons, for selfish reasons. Uh, these people sought him, and that's true. They weren't um, atheists in the classic sense, but theirs was a much more deceptive unbelief. There are those people who follow Jesus, uh, not because of who he is, but because of what they believe he can give to them. Uh, and that's what these folks did. They followed Jesus purely for what he could give them, what they believed he was going to do for them. And so he's going to use this interactive sermon. What do I call it? An interactive sermon. Because it's a questions and answers format. All right? He's going to try to use this interactive sermon to try to elevate their thinking and perspective of life from the mundane, the physical, to the spiritual. Now look, our physical needs are important. It's not that God says that don't ever think about them or worry about them. They are important. But they're not supposed to be all-consuming. And God doesn't want us living at the level of the physical. Jesus said very clearly, look, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the other things you need to live and survive on the physical level. He'll take care of that. But don't live there. You're my children. You're, you're filled with my spirit. I don't want you living the way you used to live, focusing only on the temporal, only on the physical. I want you to, to, to look at life from an, an eternal perspective. That's what Jesus was constantly trying to do. He met physical needs, as he did in feeding this great multitude the day before. But he wanted to use the opportunity then to teach them about their real need, which was not physical, was spiritual. So in verse 22, we read on the following day. Now, this is the following day after he had fed the, the uh, 5,000. Um, that was in the evening. And so the people awoke the next morning, were looking for Jesus, didn't find him anywhere, didn't realize initially that he had gone across from Bethsaida to Capernaum, again on the Sea of Galilee. And so they figured out, well, he must be in Capernaum. So we read in verse 25, they went there, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, that question is the first of three that the multitudes asked the Lord that day, which really served to uh, launch this important discourse that he gave in chapter 6. The three questions are these. Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 25. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Verse 28. And then what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? That's actually one question, verse 30. The first one, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, you read that and you go, well, they're just trying to break the ice a little bit. You know, they're just trying to make a little small talk. Uh, I don't see it that way. I see it this way. I think that here's what they were really saying to him. Lord, why did you abandon us? I mean, when did you come here? And why didn't you take us with you? Last night, we were hungry and you fed us. We were filled, glutted. This morning, we were hungry. We were looking for you. We were hoping you'd maybe make some breakfast for us and uh, feed us again, right? Now, look, you can't be running off like this. I mean, we, we put our faith in you to be our welfare state. Uh, you know what? you got to let us know when you're going to be going places so we can follow you. See, that really, in essence, is what was on their mind, I believe. That was really what was behind this question. 
Now, as we said last time, I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't even answer their question, does he? But instead gets right to the issue that was on their mind. And guys, all they were really thinking about was free food. Free food. Where's Jesus? I'm hungry. What's he got cooking for breakfast? I just wonder, you know? And so in this discourse, the Lord challenged them not to be so focused on their physical needs that they missed the spiritual need. They missed the, re the real reason why he had come into the world. It really wasn't to feed hungry stomachs. It was to feed hungry souls, is the idea. Verse 27, he said to them, Do not labor for the food which, which perishes, but for the food which endures the everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. The Greek actually comes through this way. The Lord said, stop laboring for the food that is in the process of perishing, but instead labor for the food that is in the present state of enduring. In other words, everything in the physical is passing away. Everything. But everything of the spiritual will last for eternity. Now, this is both for unbelievers and those who are saved. We are all eternal beings, and we are going to spend eternity in one of two places, even with the, Lord, uh, with the Lord in heaven or separated from the Lord in hell. Mo many folks don't realize or never, never really thought about it, but they don't really understand this. All they are doing is they're just focused so much on their physical needs, you know, on the physical they don't realize their greatest need is spiritual because that's eternal. That's eternal. So the Lord Jesus was always trying to elevate people's understanding. Yeah, he met physical needs. He loved people. He knew that that's where they lived. But he didn't want to leave them there. I mean, if he could feed someone's stomach to then get their attention to elevate their thinking to their true hunger, which was spiritual, he did that. That's what he was all about. So he wants them to say, look... Present, you know, physical food, that, that's perishing. Your body's perishing. But seek me for the food that is in the state of everlasting endurance and so on. Now, by saying this, as we said last time, Jesus wasn't, you know, don't labor for the food that perishes. He wasn't telling them to stop working for physical food to feed their bodies and just simply uh, rely on the generosity of others to feed them. That's not what he was saying. God made us to be productive. He doesn't expect us to be sponging off of people. If you can't work, that's one thing. But if you won't work, well, that's quite another. In fact, Paul, uh, in the church of Thessalonica, there were Christians apparently who felt, well, Jesus is coming back so soon, I'm not even bothered getting a job. I'll just sponge off the church until he comes. He'll be back any time. And so Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, look, if you don't work, you don't eat, is the idea, Okay. But also, the Lord is not saying that they needed to work for eternal life, okay? We know the Bible teaches clearly that eternal life is not a reward we earn, but a gift we receive by faith. In fact, it's a gift that's available to anyone who believes in Christ and asks God for it by faith. Something that Jesus alluded to in verse 27, which he, which he said when he talked about eternal life, which eternal life the Son of Man will give you, give you. However, the crowd seems to have interpreted what Jesus said as a command to work hard so as to earn 
eternal life, which caused them to ask the second question they asked Jesus that day, verse 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now, God loved these people. Jesus wasn't cross with them. He didn't get angry with them because they weren't getting it. Uh, remember, we have 2,000 years of New Testament doctrine, okay? These folks were raised in a ultra-Orthodox legalistic system known as Judaism. And it was, you know, how can we expect them to grasp grace when they were under law all their lives? So Jesus isn't cross with them. He doesn't get short-tempered with them. He seeks to keep showing them that, no, you don't work for eternal life. It's something the Father will give you. In fact, he has sent me down to purchase it that you might have it by faith. But as of this point, still coming from that very legalistic religious background, um, they thought, they thought he was talking about, you know, in their minds, you always needed to earn God's blessings, the greatest of which was eternal life. Uh, you know, they believed if you gave alms to the poor, you could uh, ingratiate yourself with God and uh, earn eternal life. Alms were gifts of money to the poor. They had this mindset so much that they thought wealthy people, they're a shoe in for heaven because they have the money to give lots of money to the poor. And when Jesus said uh, that uh, it's easier for a, um, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to get into heaven, they were blown away. Because again, you had to earn these things. That was their mindset. So Jesus is coming against 1,500 years of legalistic religious upbringing and mindset. And so they thought that, well, he's talking about eternal life. Boy, that's the greatest blessing God gives. What do we have to do to please God enough for him to grant us eternal life? Lord, tell us, what works do we need to do? Jesus said, look, verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Lord, what do we do? What work should we do to earn eternal life? You want to work? You, you want to earn? You, you want to have eternal life? Here's the work. You believe. Obviously, he wasn't saying that. You know, you had to work for it. Just using their vernacular, their uh, you know, their their verbiage. You know, just uh, you know, here's the work. It just isn't a work. You just believe. Okay, you just believe. And notice he didn't say believe and go to church. Light the candles, pray the rosary, keep the rituals, and the holy days is what I was taught in my Catholic upbringing. But there are many other religious groups that teach that, look, yeah, faith plus human works. Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say, yeah, believe and then go to temple, make sure you keep all the uh, holy days and the feast days and so on. He said, this is the work of God to have eternal life. Just believe in me. Believe on the one whom he has sent. Now, that then led to the third question the crowd asked Jesus that day. Verse 30, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe? What work will you do? And again, guys, this is one question, not two. The word sign is the Greek word for miracle, and that's what they had in mind with the word work. Um, th this came in response to what Jesus said in verse 29. Don't work, just believe, right? Believe what? In me as your Messiah, your Savior, okay? 
And uh, so this led them to ask, well, um, if you want us to believe in you, you got to show us a sign. You got to do something miraculous. Let me paraphrase what I kind of believe they're saying here. You claim to be the Messiah. Okay. What sign will you give us to get uh, our vote? Quote unquote. Uh, what miracle will you do? So as to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in fact the Messiah, the one God promised Moses he would someday send into the world. And of course, you know, uh, he, you know we, we think of Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. That's what they, it wasn't uh, 18, verse 18 back then. There were no chapter and verses, but that's where, what they were thinking of, okay? Because uh, Moses promised someday uh, God was going to send a prophet, capital P, but we know more than a prophet, Messiah and Savior, right? It's interesting that they were essentially asking Jesus to buy or to bribe them for their faith. In other words, they were saying, you know, we'll believe in you, but only if you give us that or do for us this, okay? So a lot of folks out there who try to make deals with God, okay? Try to make deals with God. Um, well, I was telling for a service that um, years ago, uh, my aunt and uncle who lived out in California, their son Scott, uh, who was 18, at that great kid, and they just adored this uh, young guy. And, uh, but he contracted a very, I think it was a parasite of some kind that attacked his liver, and he was very sick. His mom and dad were not religious at all, very secular, never thought about God, never talked about God, very secular. But my mom that lived out there and her brother, uh, my uncle's other uh, brother, uh, were both strong Christians. And so they were working on my Uncle Bill and Arlene and just, you know, trying to. And so at one point, Scotty was uh, on the verge of death for, for a couple weeks. And at one point, they came into the uh, hospital room where my mom and uncle were and uh, were Christians and said, uh, okay, uh, we're ready to give Jesus a chance. We're ready to try him out, you know. So we'll pray that, you know, we'll, we'll pray to receive him if he heals our son. You don't make deals with God. I mean, sometimes God will be gracious and give you what you want, but not because you made a deal with him, because he's gracious. Scotty was a believer. God did not heal him. He went home. Of course, his mom and dad were devastated, and they turned against God, and they would have nothing to do with him for years. They did soften at the end of their lives, and before they died, they both received Christ. These folks remind me of that kind of a, a mindset. Uh, they were often offering Jesus their faith at a price, basically saying, look, uh, if we believe, what are you going to give us in return? They suggested that producing bread from heaven, as Moses did, might convince them now we know they had Moses on their mind and they know that they had the miracle of the manna on their mind because they go on to tell us what was on their minds in verse 31 our fathers ate the manna in the desert you know during the days of Moses as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat now that's a quote out of Psalm 78 verse 24 if you're taking notes but apparently these people were challenging Jesus is challenged. Now, he challenged them in verse 29. Look, stop trying to earn God's gift 
and just believe in me by, you know, just believe in me with faith and uh, receive the gift, as, uh, eternal life as a gift, right? Um, and apparently they were challenging Jesus' challenge. Um, he was challenging them to believe on him as their Messiah and Savior. Uh, however, they were basically saying, we're not inclined to do that unless you give us some kind of a, a sign, a miracle. You see, the rabbis taught that when Messiah came, the true Messiah, there was always false Messiah showing up. When the true Messiah came, one of the things he would do is he would duplicate uh, the feeding of the, the manna from heaven. So they were looking for this, right? Um, and they were thinking if Jesus was truly sent by God as Messiah, then let him prove it by causing manna to fall from heaven. And uh, they reasoned. Again, if Jesus was really who he claimed to be, he would at least do miracles equal to that of Moses, right? As of this point, even though Jesus had multiplied a small amount of food the day before and fed 20,000 hungry people, apparently they thought to themselves, big deal. Big deal, right? He only multiplied existing food. Moses created food by causing bread to fall from heaven, not just once like Jesus did yesterday but every day for 40 years. Could Jesus do that? If not, he wasn't even as great, let alone greater than Moses. How, how could he be the Messiah, right? Now, guys, listen. Jesus will never buy our faith. He won't ever bribe us to believe in him. First of all, because he doesn't need us. We need him. He's not a politician trying to buy votes, right? We all live in Chicago. We all understand that. <laughs> First of all, we need him. He, he doesn't need us. doesn't need our vote. Okay? We don't vote him into office. He's coming to reign, and guess what? Uh, he's not going to be up for re-election every, every four years. But secondly, this is a bogus concept uh, that they were trying to buy, uh, you know, get, bribe us and we'll believe in you. Guys, let me just say this. A bribed faith is a bogus faith. We see this a lot today with uh, churches and movements that teach if you believe in Jesus, he will bless you with the biggest house in the neighborhood, the fanciest car, uh, he will make you wealthy and so on. And so people fill those churches. When I watch those kinds of evangelists or preachers uh, on TV once in a while, not a lot, once in a while, and they're in a stadium somewhere, it's always packed. It's always packed. Because they've been basically taught you believe in Christ and he will bless you with all kinds of material things. But you know what? A bought faith to me is a bogus faith. I mean, what do they really believe? They believe that Jesus is going to make them wealthy. It's not about denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following after Jesus, which is the core of true saving faith. And besides all of that, they had their facts wrong, didn't they? Which Jesus points out here in verse 32. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The Lord's answer conveys at least two thoughts. 
First of all, it wasn't Moses that gave them the famine. It was God. As Jesus taught us in the model prayer we like to call the Our Father, He taught us to pray this way, Our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Now I bring that out because as Christians we often believe that, or probably always believe it, most Christians do, uh, in theory but not in practice. Because a lot of Christians, when they go through difficult times, uh, and the money's not there to pay the rent or mortgage or to fix the car or maybe even to buy food for that week. They tend to look to a person, men in some de- to some degree, a boss or somebody, uh, to, uh, to get them out of this situation or bail them out. When in reality, God wants us to always look to him for whatever we have need of. Uh, I, this comes through very clearly in the Old Testament when at different times, Israel was besieged by an enemy who had, uh, you know, uh, camped against them. At one point, Israel sent messengers down to Egypt to try to hire the Egyptians to come with their chariots and all and horses to, uh, you know, fight with Israel against their enemies. And God uh, called them on this. He said, look, the Egyptians are men. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. Why are you looking to man for help? When you have me, the Lord God Almighty, who has promised to take care of you and provide for you and protect you and so on. We would do well to understand this. I don't know what your need is this morning or what you're going through, but whatever it is, turn to God and look to him to be the solution. Put your trust in him to supply all your needs. Because guess what? In this new year, if you don't put your faith in God for these things, well, Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And a lot of times, you know, as James says, people ask God, but, they, you know, but they, their hearts are wavering. They're not really sure God's going to come through. He said, don't expect to receive anything from the Lord with an unstable uh, heart. So, first of all, Moses didn't provide the manna. It was God. They had that wrong. But secondly, manna, uh, they were looking at his everything. It was almost like that was like the biggest thing God ever did for them. Guys, manna was literal food designed for the physical body, but it had no value beyond this life. Apparently, they didn't understand that. Jesus is telling this Jewish multitude that the manna, and by the way, God never called it manna. Do you realize that? You can read about the manna in Exodus 16. God never, when they, when they first got, uh, stepped out of their tents, the first day that the manna had fallen, they stepped out of their tents and looked at it on the ground and said, manna, which in the Hebrew means, what is it? It's a derogatory term, not, oh boy, God provided. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It's like, what is this? What is it? God never called it manna. He called it bread from heaven, Okay. But it was all designed to point to another bread. A type of another bread it was that the Father would someday send from heaven. And just as the manna in the wilderness fed the body and sustained physical life, this true bread would feed the soul and impart eternal life. I like the way one author put it. He said, and I quote, The Lord Jesus revealed himself as the bread of God, which came down from heaven and gives life. 
He was showing the superiority of the bread of God to the manna in the wilderness. The manna did not impart life, but only sustained physical life. It was not intended for the whole world, but only for Israel. The true bread comes down from heaven and gives life to men, not just to one nation, but to all the world, unquote. So guys, the manna was a type of Christ. Didn't Jesus say in Psalm 40, verse 7, the volume of the book is written of me? I mean, we should expect to see Jesus all over the Old Testament, and we do, uh, in type and so on. So the manna was a type of Christ. Let me show you how. I can give you dozens of these. I'll just give you a few, okay? How manna was a type of Christ. Manna, first of all, like Christ, came down from heaven. It was not a product of the earth. Number two, manna was a free gift from God. It was not the result of man's labor. Number three, it fell each morning around the camp and around every tent, which meant... You either got on your knees to gather it up, or you trampled it underfoot. Remember what the writer of the Hebrews said in chapter 10, verse 29? He said that there are those that God has made his son available to who reject Christ, want nothing to do with him. So his blood, a precious thing, they trample underfoot. They trample the Savior underfoot. They count what he did a worthless thing. When the manna fell, you either got on your knees and gathered it up like you gather Christ up when you got saved, or you trampled it underfoot like an unbeliever. Number four, it fell in abundance and was available for anyone, but you had to gather it yourself or you starved. Look, God won't force you to have your devotions and feed on Jesus and his word. I mean, you can spiritually starve if you want to, and believe me, there are a lot of Christians. If many Christians treated their physical body the way they treat their spiritual man, they would have been dead a long time ago. But we don't do, do that, do we? The stomach gives a little twinge of hunger, and we're just right away running to the fast food place or whatever, uh, you know, to feed our stomachs. The spiritual man is crying out, feed me quick, I'm dying here. How do we know that? How do we, that's not really a, a hunger pain like our stomachs give us when they're, it's hungry. How do we know when the spiritual man is starving? How's your language? How's your language lately? You know? How do you act when somebody maybe cuts you off on the road? Do you pray for them? Or do you want to get up there and cut them off, you know? How's your temper been? How's your mind been as far as what you think about? These are all indications that the spiritual man, if those things are not good, the spiritual man is starving and needs to be filled with the Spirit again by really getting into the Word and drawing close to Jesus. Number five. You had to gather it every day. You couldn't gather an abundance of manna one day and then take the next four or five days off. You needed to gather a fresh supply each day or it would what? Stink. would rot. I mean, you could gather as much as you wanted to one day, but if you tried to store it up, it wouldn't make it into the second day. It would rot and be eaten with worms and stink. 
Why did God do that? He wanted them each day to depend on them for their daily bread. He wanted them each day to trust him, to draw close to him, that he would feed them, right? The person who says, I usually spend 15 minutes in the morning reading the Bible, doing my devotions, but today I spent an hour, so I'm going to sleep in the next four or five days. That stinks. Stinks. Not going to do you very... You know, great, you spend an hour with the Lord. And there are times I get up and I'm reading my Bible and sometimes uh, I will read it for, you know, an hour or more because I'm just, the Lord's really got my attention and I'm seeing things and so on. Um, but I don't say the next day, well, I can take the rest of the week off. It doesn't work like that. Well, you, you, as great as your devotions were yesterday, they won't carry you through today. You got to get into the Word again, right? But we're lazy. Don't, aren't we at times we're lazy? And we think, well, I had such a great devotion yesterday, and I went extra time. I'll just sleep in today. We're lazy, right? Um, I heard a pastor say one time, guys, what do you think your wife would say if you tried that with her? Honey, let's talk today for a couple hours, and then leave me alone the rest of the week. <laughs> Try it. <laughs> if you dare. Number six, manna was white. Represented Christ's righteousness. It was sweet to the taste, as is our fellowship with Jesus. Number seven, manna was despised by those who were not the Lord's covenant people. Remember, not everybody who came out of Egypt really belonged to God's covenant people. There was a mixed multitude that came out with the Jewish people, right? What were the mixed multitude? Probably Gentiles that uh, you know, maybe Egyptian servants or Egyptian people that um, uh, had seen uh, Jehovah work in a very powerful way. Look, nobody wants to hang out with the losers, right? I mean, Egypt, they had lost. God had vanquished them with the plagues and everything, right? So now he leads his people out. Nobody wants to hang out with the losers. Uh, you know, there were thrill seekers in Egypt, like there always are in any place where, you know, God's working. And so, you know, a lot of these mixed multitude came out with God's people. But they were the first ones to murmur and complain, weren't they? They were the first ones to grow tired of the manna and begin to complain. And of course, murmuring and complaining is infective. Begins to, to spread and causes others who are God's people to begin to murmur and complain. So God, God hates it so much. But um, it, was, it was these folks that were tired of the manna. They wanted meat. They wanted other things. They wanted the leeks and the onions and the garlics of Egypt. Think about that. Leeks, onions, garlic, that is what grew out of the earth. It was of the world. The manna came down from heaven. But these folks, a lot of them were tired of God's provision. They thought the world still had things that would make them happy and satisfy them. Didn't Paul the Apostle warn us in Colossians 2 not to be um, taken captive through these empty worldly philosophies, the wisdom of man, which is the devil's way of trying to get us away from the truth of God's word by feeding us this idea that, you know, the world has things that we need to feed on that will bless us and help us and cause us to have a well-adjusted life and so on. I even have heard Christian pastors uh, and Christian psychologists to say, if you just stick to the Bible, you'll never be fruitful and victorious, and all God wants you to be, you've got to mix the Bible with psychology, because that's a, a, a superior 
counseling methodology. No, it isn't. God's word is perfect. It's pure. I'm going to take the wisdom of the world, mix it with something that's perfect and pure, and get what? Something that's more perfect and more pure? No, you're just going to pollute what's perfect and pure. Paul said, look, in Christ is all the fullness of God. You're in Christ as Christians. And so you are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head of, over every ruler and authority. Guys, God's word is bread from heaven. It alone can feed the soul and produce health, strength, and growth in our spiritual man. And by the way, when all that is physical is destroyed, the word of God lives and abides forever, right? First Timothy, First Peter 1, verse 25. The word of God lives in the... When God destroys this world and recreates the heavens and the earth, when everything that people have focused on in this life, which was all important to them, uh, who did not receive Christ, uh, when, when God destroys this present universe, they will have lost everything. But most importantly, they will have lost their soul. But the word of God will still endure forever. And if God's word is, is eternal, shouldn't we be feeding on it in time? Shouldn't we be feeding on it now in a preparation for eternity, right? I'll give you one more. Number eight, you had to gather the manna early, didn't you? If you slept in and the sun got a little, started to get hot, it melted away. Was that the Holy Spirit's way of telling us that morning devotions? You know, you know if you really want to um, feed on Jesus, so to speak, isn't the morning the best time to do it? I don't know about you, but having devotions in the morning sets the tone for the whole day. It just gets you off on the right foot, doesn't it? I know some people are not morning people. They like to do devotions at the end of the day. That's fine. I'm saying, you know, but there's something about the morning, and I'm wondering if that's what the Holy Spirit intended when, he told, when God told his people, you have to get up early to gather the manna. If the sun gets too hot, if it rises too high in the sky, the manna will melt and you'll go hungry that day. Of course, the mixed multitude, as I said, grew tired of the manna because they were not truly God's people. But for those who are truly born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, we never get tired of feeding on God's word, do we? I've been feeding on God's word now for almost 40 years. And I never, um, I'm always craving it. And when I read it, it never stops ministering to me. It never stops feeding my soul. There are times that I've read a passage a few dozen times. And I will read it, and all of a sudden I'm overwhelmed by the love of God, or the grace of God, or the goodness of God. I start weeping. Because it's like, Lord, after all these years of reading this, I never get tired of hearing about how awesome you are, how kind you are, and so on. And so we'll finish with verse 34. Now, he's talking about this bread from heaven, right? And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Well, at this point, the multitudes didn't realize that Jesus was speaking to them about himself. They thought he was talking about physical bread instead of spiritual bread um, that would give them eternal life, much like the woman by the well in John 4, right? And she was thirsty, came to the well 
to get some water to drink. And Jesus said, if you, give the, if you receive the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. It'll be like a spring of water bubbling up within your soul unto eternal life, right? What was he talking about? What was the living water? Him, just like the bread of life was him, right? Now, she didn't get it either. Lord, give me this water so I don't have to come to this stupid well and, 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 and get water every day. No, 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 it's not, it's not physical. It's me. You're thirsty in your soul. You're going from one relationship to the other. You're living with a guy. It's because in your soul there's a thirst, a thirst that only I can fill. Receive me. I'm the living water. These people are hungry for food. I'm the bread of life. It's all about Jesus, right? Guys, the main message, as we bring this to a close, the main message of the bread of life discourse is that Jesus is the true manna, the spiritual bread who came down from heaven, which if a person eats, quote-unquote, in other words, believes in, will receive everlasting life. Now, this message wasn't received as enthusiastically as was the literal bread Jesus provided the day before, Right? The day before, they couldn't get enough of the physical bread. Now he's talking about spiritual bread, and they're not so hot about this message. Because people are more than willing for God to meet their physical needs, but start talking about their spiritual need, especially the need to repent of the way they're living and give their life to Christ and become a new creator. Ah, that's not a message that they really... God wants to help me pay the rent, if he wants to give me money for the mortgage or to fix the car, whatever. I'm all for it. But I don't really want to hear about it. I need to change. Okay? So they weren't so hot on Jesus receiving Jesus as the spiritual bread. But he is the bread of life. And only he can satisfy the hunger in a person's heart. The bottom line to this message so far, guys, well, we can look at what God said to the people of Israel in Isaiah's day, who were living very prosperously, but their soul was empty. And because their soul was empty, they weren't close to God. They were trying to buy happiness. And at one point in Isaiah 55, verses 2 to 3, God says to them, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? In other words, all you really need to live is bread, water, you know. But you're using your money to buy all kinds of other things because you're trying to fill this void inside. And, and, and material things never do that. So why, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what, what does not satisfy your soul is the idea. Listen carefully. So, almost sounds like emotion. Surely I say to you, listen carefully to me and eat what is good, talking about spiritual food, and delight yourself in the abundance that I give, God is saying. Incline your ear and come to me. Come to me. Isn't that essentially what Jesus is saying to these people who are so preoccupied with their physical needs, their hunger? And he's telling them, look, fulfillment is only going to come through me. There's a void in your heart. I put it there. A God-shaped void that I put there because only I can fill it. Now, if you don't realize that, you're going to run all over the world trying to find whatever's going to make you happy to fill that void. It's not anything the world has to offer. But today people are frantically searching for happiness and fulfillment in life in all the wrong places. They think they're going to find those things, happiness, fulfillment, material, uh, uh, material things, possessions, and physical pleasures. But look, if outward material things and physical pleasures brought happiness, Solomon would have been the happiest guy in the face of the earth. 
Read the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Solomon went on a very long journey, and I don't have time to get into it, but he went on a very long, as a young man, he listened to his dad. Dad told him on, uh, on the day he was coronated as king, Solomon, draw close to God, he'll draw close to you. Serve him with a willing heart, a loyal mind, and he will never forsake you. You forsake him, he'll forsake you. So initially, Solomon is a young guy, took those words to heart, was very close to God, but eventually his relationship with God began to cool. He began to, to pursue other things because he thought the world had things that he really needed to fulfill his happiness. He was empty inside. And so you can read about the journey he went on. It took most of his life. He thought, well, you know, I'll find fulfillment in education. So he learned as much as he could. Got many doctorates, we would say today. That wasn't it. Well, maybe life's all about, uh, you know, partying and pleasure. So he would throw parties constantly in the palace. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, unlimited uh, opportunities for, for physical pleasure. That wasn't it. He decided, well, uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, building stuff. They built the, he built the temple. Uh, he built the te a, a beautiful new palace for himself, other uh, structures for his wives. Uh, he beautified gardens. He lived at the Home Depot most of the week, buying stuff. <laughs> Not that any American does that. Uh, nobody worships their home but here in America, but here. Uh, but he was out there, you know, building beautiful gardens and all kinds of structures because he thought, well, maybe when I'm gone, this will be my legacy. This is going to make me satisfied. That wasn't it. Then he started a business, began to be an importer, exporter, and made tons of money. He became a very successful businessman, but that wasn't it. And all the way through the book, every time he tried something new that he thought was going to bring him the happiness and fulfillment he was looking for, it always ended with vanity, vanity, everything is emptiness and vanity. Where? Where? Under the sun, S-U-N. In other words, if you look at life only from Earth's perspective, and you pursue all the things the world has to offer, guess what? It's emptiness and it's vanity. That's why he said in chapter 3, the Lord has put eternity in our hearts. And as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, he has seated us with Christ in heavenly places. That's going to be our vantage point of this life. We have to see everything from the, from the perspective of eternity. Otherwise, it's just emptiness and vanity. Life has no meaning. It has no purpose. Isn't that what Jesus basically said? When he said, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he or she possesses. We would do well to listen to Jesus. Why? Well, because he made us. And he knows what is going to make us happy. And through the Beatitudes, which were the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, he basically told us, guys, now I'm paraphrasing the, what, what the idea he was bringing forth. He basically told us that it's pure foolishness to think you can fill the void in your soul with the junk of this world. And yet, how many people are feverishly trying to do that very thing? Well, my marriage is lousy. I think I'll buy a new car. Oh, how unhappy am I work? I'm going to go shopping. That'll make me happy. That'll cheer me up. In fact, we have a whole... The whole advertising industry is based on this principle. If you're unhappy in any area of your life, product X, Y, and Z will bring you the fulfillment and the happiness you're looking for. So you watch these beer commercials or these, uh, you know, even the soda commercials, right? I mean, you know, but, but you know, you, you see some, some, you know, guy on TV, 
he's kind of geeky in some ways, but he's, got, he's drinking the right beer, and all the ladies are around him, right? And so some geek sitting at home in his mother's basement looking at this thing goes, you know what, I'm going to start drinking that beer. I mean, he knows that's not going to do it, but, you know, they plant the little seed there, right? You know, the, the people driving this car, they're always looking. Look at the, they're so happy. You know, look at, he's got the beautiful girl. The top is down. Look at that. Life is good when I drive something like that. That's what I'm going to go out and get. That doesn't work. It's what Paul called the deceitfulness of riches. If you had enough money, you'd be happy. It doesn't work that way. But on and on people go. So many pursuing so feverishly the elusive concept of happiness when all the while true happiness is not found, listen, in a possession or in a pleasure is found in a person. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. So once again, to repeat what God himself said, why do you spend money for what is not essentials? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Come to me. That is the message for this new year. I believe that's the message God is saying to each one of us. Because as Christians, we can get dry. We can become, uh, to the, get it to the point where, you know, where we feel empty, dry. Now, that should be a time when you renew your commitment to Christ, get on your knees and start reading the Bible more than you ever have. But it doesn't always work that way, does it? People start drifting away. And they start getting back into the things of the world. It's the devil's way of ripping us off from what really matters. God is saying, don't fall prey to that. Come to me. I will satisfy the emptiness in your heart. It's through me. Not a possession, not a pleasure, through a person. My son, Jesus Christ. May God give us the grace to understand that this year and to really pursue Jesus with all our hearts. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it has a way of shining the light into the corners of our lives that we're buying into deception. Your word is a way of showing us that what the world is offering is a cheap substitute that can't make good on its promise. The only thing that will make good on the promise of fulfillment, everlasting life, is, of course, Jesus Christ, your word. We thank you, Lord, for that and ask you to give us an insatiable hunger this year to know you in a deeper way by studying your word faithfully each day. And we gather the manna each morning and we feed on it all throughout the day. Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen.